0: Welcome everyone to The Ziegler Show. I am your host, Kevin Miller. Today I bring you Cal Newport, professor of computer science, renowned author of the book Deep Work, and now his latest book, Digital Minimalism, which I just had my two teenage boys read after I did. And we're going to talk Today, about how to get a leash on our technology and take back our worlds. Hey, real quick, I want to thank you all. Uh, social media is a buzz right now with some recent stats that have just been released, citing there are now over 750,000 podcasts and rapidly growing. It's just an incredible medium and I think it's growing more than just about anything else right now. And you can search where your favorite podcasts rank by visiting chartable.com. This is not an ad for them, but just where you can go see how popular your shows are. But by your listening, and by so many of you recommending the Ziegler show to others, we're generally ranking in the top 900 to 1300 on any given day of all podcasts on planet earth. And I just wanted to take a second to thank you. I'm really, really grateful and honored. Hey, a quick word to our show sponsors. And then we're going to dig into this episode with Cal Newport. All right, friends, so why would renowned associate professor of computer science at Georgetown University, Cal Newport, shun social media and just keep ultra tight restrictions on his own technology usage? Well, it's because, as you're going to hear, he desires to master his life, uh, his peace, his productivity, and he knows the limiting power of unleashed electronics in his life and in our lives. As an analogy, imagine waking up and immediately eating a donut. Uh, which I like, Uh, I would like, I don't do it, but then you're getting ready for work and having a breakfast of say donuts. And on the way to work, you have a donut. As a matter of fact, you just keep a dozen with you at all times and rarely let 15 to 20 minutes go by without at least having a bite. I mean, what harm is there in just a bite here and there? But of course, by day's end, you never had enough room in your belly to get any good nutrition in You feel a bit woozy, of course, from all the sugar and carbs, even as you sneak a couple bites in as your head hits the pillow and you try to get some sleep, which is disturbed by the day's intake of junk. Or you could say the same thing with constant spending of money. Okay. You get the idea. We, We all know we got a budget, our nutrition intake and our financial expenses. We know we can't binge on anything continuously, but in a short amount of time in our lifespans, our electronics and devices have crept in. And many of us find ourselves on a near nonstop diet. And what is it doing to us? Well, that's our topic today. And as I mentioned, Cal Newport, he is an associate professor of computer science at Georgetown university. And the author, six books including his most recent Digital Minimalism Choosing a Focused Life in a Noisy World Well two of his books uh Deep Work which the title there the subtitle Rules for Focused Success in a Distracted World and So Good They Can't Ignore You is his other book, one of his other books. And I have heard so many of our world influencers reference these books. It was actually a testimony of Michael Hyatt that prompted me to do this interview with Cal. Uh, you won't find Cal on social media, not on Twitter, not on Facebook or Instagram, but you can often find him at home with his family in Washington, D.C. or writing essays for his really popular website and blog at Cal, C-A-L Newport in dot com. Gratefully, he did take time to have an in-depth conversation with me that I'm bringing to you now. I, I think we all need to hear this message. So here I bring you Cal Newport. All right, Cal. So you are a professor of computer science somewhat, or at least by face value. Now I've read the book, so I know that there's a backstory, but by face value, it looks like you're eschewing technology, you know, to a degree. And with, you know, especially with deep work, what, and then on into digital minimalism, what was the catalyst in your own life that really set you on this path of, as you say, the intersection of technology and society?
1: Well, I mean, I think as a technologist, I'm a little bit more sensitive to technology and its role in our lives. And I'm more sensitive to when I see technology being, let's say, misused or used in a way that we're not getting the full benefits out of it, it seems like a wasted opportunity to me. So my life has been a swirl of technology and futurism. I'm very interested in the potential of these tools, but it means I'm a pretty critical customer. And so when I look around and see a particular place where some tech is intersecting with culture and causing more harm than good or is being used in a way that is missing out on all the real potential of that particular underlying technology... I get a little bit upset about it. (laughs) I start writing about it. I start thinking about it. And so uh, to me, it's a pretty natural role. Who better to be talking about these issues than someone whose life is surrounded by them.
0: Okay. Well, in that, in just what you said there, I mean, you've obviously got a care for humanity in this and you're enmeshed in it again. But when you step back, you know, on both of these books specifically and say, what is, if I ask you, what is the main benefit as you, or I should say the burden, you know, we always talk about passions, follow your passions. But sometimes I find my, uh, myself in my work, uh, trying to address people in something. I feel kind of burdened that they're hurting in, or they're not flourishing in And I almost felt like that a little bit as I read through your stuff. What is the burden that you overall
1: feel as you look out at the culture and see what's happening? Well, I think the age of digital communication networks brought unique burdens to our work life and to our personal life. And they seem similar on the surface, but they actually underneath have some pretty different causes going on. And so in our work life, what happened was, at least in my opinion, is that we brought in low friction digital communication to the workplace. I can now reach someone very easily by, let's say, typing a message and hitting send on an email or in like a Slack or instant messenger window, which seemed on the surface to be, of course, this is positive. We're, we're, we're taking something we're already doing, communication, and we're making it we're making it easier. But it had a lot of unintended consequences. And it ended yeah. up in the workplace, especially in knowledge work, essentially completely reorganizing the way we approached our, our obligations in our jobs. And our jobs became much more about this continuous, ongoing, unstructured conversation which actually made our brains worse at producing the value that we've been hired to do. So in the workplace, we had this unintentional consequence where networks plus knowledge work meant that we accidentally made ourselves worse at knowledge work. And then in our personal lives, we have a completely different thing going on, which is the rise of highly irresistible attention economy products offered through our phones yeah. transformed our relationship with this technology to the point where we realized that we were being pulled away from things that were important to us in our life outside of work. And so both in work and outside of work, the age of networks have unintentionally brought on these opportunities for us to be distracted from things that are more important.
0: So I'm curious, in your professorship, uh, in your teaching there, through the, is this, has, have these messages become a part of your own Uh, teaching platform. I assume they have to, but is that what you're known for even amongst the students?
1: Well, you know, I I had two separate trajectories here that increasingly are coming together. And so I'm a computer scientist to focus on theory. I work on the theory of distributed systems. That's my actual area, which means I prove theorems about how computers can work together to solve problems. That's my, that's my expertise, but I've also been writing about the impact of tech and culture. Increasingly, those trajectories are getting closer as I find huh. uh, my work on distributed systems heading towards those topics, and I find my, my public-facing work becoming more academic, and those worlds are now increasingly starting to combine. So where it used to be two completely separate worlds, Professor Cal and Writer Cal were two completely separate worlds, yeah. now it's becoming harder and harder to pull them apart. Okay, well, I, I guessed as much, which is why I asked the question.
0: Well, I want to, and of course, the new book, Digital Minimalism. I want to get into that message, but as you, they, they both, you know, join to such a great degree. I was looking at Deep Work, that's three years old, a little bit over that now. As of yesterday, I didn't look at it this morning, but it was eight hundred and twenty-one uh, in overall books in Amazon, which I know for a three-year-old book, you're selling a lot of books, and it's interesting to me that if we look at Deep work, getting rid of the distractions, focusing on something, creating great value. I can see this amongst my gosh the people that I interview on the show myself, the deep work you 're writing you're create for those who are creating and inventing uh, entrepreneurs, even, but I wonder for those out there who feel like they 've just got a and i i, I, I don 't know how to say this better, but you know basic job do they realize the need for deep work. Is there anyone here in this show? Now, obviously we've got a bunch of people who are aspiring out there. That's why they're listening to the show, but who may not realize the value or the necessity of deep work within what they look at as a basic job.
1: I think there's lots of people for which the message is applicable and they're not, they haven't yet heard it or they're not yet thinking about it. I mean, essentially in knowledge work. So if primarily you're creating value with your brain, Mm -hmm. Unbroken concentration is how you extract the most value from that brain. Now, this is obvious in maker roles. If you're a, a computer programmer or a professor, right? Okay, it's, it's quite obvious that you're a maker and what you're supposed to do is think hard and produce things. But what's become clear to me as I research this topic is there's all sorts of other roles in which this type of highly skilled thinking is really important. So let's say you're a manager. Mm-hmm. It's increasingly common now that if you're in a managerial role that your day has become increasingly, increasingly just communication. Communicating sending messages mm-hmm. about jobs. The best research I can find is the average manager study now spends something like 85% of their day email, phone, and meetings. Wow. So it's essentially most of what they do. But what you learn if you really push deeper is, well, there's a distinction between communicating all the time and the deep skill of being a good manager. The I need to sit down and plan what we're going to do next. I need to spend a couple hours with this employee, get the motivation worked out get them high producing. I need to build a new system that's going to enable us to 10X our results going on. Actually, the hard work of really managing is something that could be quite distinct from communicating all the time. Even in support roles, we see this. Let's say you're you're in a a direct support role. uh, And you might say, well, then, of course, you should be communicating all the time. But there's still a distinction between actually executing well the things that you need to do for the people you're supporting versus communicating all the time. And so this is something where, example, in IT this was figured out a little while ago where IT departments figured out we can't just be constantly accessible because we can't actually solve the IT problems if all we're ever doing is talking about them. So they invented ticketing systems that much more structures and prevents them from having to constantly be in uninterrupted conversation. And so what I found is the ability to actually work without interruption on what you do best is something that's important in many different roles in knowledge work, not just people that are classically known as a role that requires a lot of thinking. And I think Okay. We're just slowly coming to that realization that when it comes to knowledge work, we have to start thinking about how does our brain actually work? What's the best way to actually get value out of it?
0: Okay, well, on that, so hitting just the humanity aspect, as I was digging into deep work, it reminded me of the you know, pithy statement, but we all know it, if, uh, Pascal is credited with it, at least the, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. And I got that vibe in reading the book. I could hear you saying all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone, undistracted, and focus on a worthwhile task. And I say that as somebody who struggles with that. I do spend a lot of my time uh, writing and creating, as you said, a maker. And I, I enjoy it. I love it. Why do I let myself get distracted, but, but back to the humanity aspect of that. I mean, we know, you know, we keep hearing, or I, I keep hearing testimony from the corporate world on, you know, millennials and post-millennials and how they have knowledge, but not soft skills. So I've been talking to my kids. I have older kids now about the value of soft skills. I see this as another part of, well, I wanted to ask you, I mean, deep work, the, the inability for people to focus, let's look at millennials to, to say, how do you see it affecting? The workforce? Is it another void? They don't have soft skills and they can't give their attention to something.
1: Well, I think deep work is fundamental to the, the further evolution of our knowledge economy. I think the fact that we're getting worse at deep work is actually going to have economic scale effects. That's what I was asking, talking okay. about economy and stagnating. I think in part because our ability to focus is getting worse. Why does it matter? Well, there's two things you can do when you can focus hard. A, you can learn really hard things quickly. Learning requires uninterrupted focus on something difficult. You have to stretch yourself. You have to give it uh, concentrated concentration. Um, if you are uncomfortable focusing, it's hard for you to learn new things, which is vital for a fast-moving knowledge economy. And two, when you focus without distraction, you produce at a much higher level of cognitive output than if you don't. So it literally makes you less productive. I mean, one way to think about it is if you're trying to work on something that's cognitively demanding while, let's say, checking an email inbox every five or 10 minutes. This creates an effect called attention residue, which significantly Mm -hmm. reduces your cognitive performance. It's roughly equivalent to putting, let's say, a shot of Jack Daniels in front of your desk every half hour in terms of the impairment to your cognitive ability. We essentially have a whole workforce that is working at a fraction of what they could be producing with their brains, and it's a self-imposed cognitive impairment. We just don't realize it. We just don't realize that there's really a cost to try to fragment this attention, that there's a real cost to have to switch our attention all the time from this inbox to this, to this conversation, back to Slack to this. It's not really how this mess of neurons between our ears actually functions. And so we have a mismatch right now between how we behave and the way our brains actually work. It's almost as if we were back in ancient Sparta, a time where let's say military and athletic prowess was, was really important. And we were all eating junk food. We now have a culture built around the ability to think, and we're really bad at thinking.
0: Okay. the, The attention residue that, uh, that nailed me. Honestly, Cal, that was the one that stuck out to me. I, love doing the deep work, but I also love distraction. I enjoy distraction. I'll look for it if it's not there. And so I have to sequester myself. But when you, I'm actually want you to define that a little bit more because I see that with myself. I'm, and, and as you've defined it, I see it in my kids. I see it in the coworkers, the employees that I've got. And it's such a tangible, uh, what you, you define
1: it for us. Well, so this comes out of, in part, the pioneer research of a, a psychologist named Sophie Leroy. Okay. And the basic idea is um, if you're focusing on a task, let's call this task A, maybe you're writing something or, or working on a strategy. If you then switch your attention to some other task, let's call it task B, like an email inbox, when you come back to A, there is a residue left over from that switch. Mm-hmm. And that residue reduces your cognitive capacity. And so you can measure this in the, the way they measure this in the lab is they'll, they'll actually have task A, B, some sort of task that you can measure like puzzles that you're solving, where they can actually quantify how fast are you solving the puzzle, how many mistakes are you making. And then the, the uh, researcher comes in and interrupts the subject. Hey, oh, you forgot to fill out, you know, mm-hmm. this, I need this information for your form, right? And okay, now you can go back to your, now you can go back to your puzzle and they can watch the performance drop. And it can take a while, like 10, 15, maybe 20 minutes until the residue clears and you're working back at full performance because our brain is not very good at quickly switching context. It, it does one thing. It gets settled into that thing. And so what's happening in the standard knowledge worker workflow is that we think we're single tasking because we don't have multiple things open at the same time. We don't do that, that early two thousands, you know, I'm on the phone with the email and Microsoft word open. We don't do that anymore. But what we do is the quick checks every five or 10 minutes. Yeah. What's going on on social? What's going on in inbox? What's going on in Slack? what's going on, you know, ESPN.com. And what we're just beginning to realize is that those quick checks have an almost equivalently bad negative impact. It's really reducing our ability to think. It also burns us out. Uh, It makes us feel worn out and unproductive. It's as if you're putting sand into gears of our cognitive machinery and you can feel that grit Mm -hmm. and you can feel that grinding. It's why we, we come out of a day where we're doing a lot of this, instead of feeling very productive, we feel somehow a little bit drained and hollow It's because we are conflicting with the way that our actual neural circuitry optimally works.
0: Well, you just shot a hole in the badge of honor of multitasking, uh, basically, which I do. I feel like that's held up. It's, it's, it's back to the busy thing. You know, you're important uh, if you're busy. And if you're not, what? Yeah, go
1: ahead. Yeah, well, I mean, the way, the way I think about it is you have deep work, which is the uninterrupted, high output cognitive work. And then you have everything else, which I call shallow work. Yeah. And the way it works typically is you know, shallow work is what keeps the lights on. You have, to, you have to do it, right? I mean, the invoices have to get paid and the clients have to get the information sent to them. But deep work is what moves the needle. So it's like shallow work maybe is what prevents you from getting fired, but deep work is what's going to get you a promotion. Or shallow work is what maybe prevents you from uh, going bankrupt because you don't invoice your clients. Deep work is what gets you to the, the to next acquisition. And so both are important, but they're separate. And so you have to think if I'm just doing the shallow work, I'm not moving the needle, which means I'm not getting better. I'm not growing. My company's not growing. I'm not growing within my company. Um, And if you're only doing deep work, of course, then probably you're going to be in trouble because, hey, if you're ignoring your boss and your clients, bad things will happen. But you have to see these as two separate ingredients, for a thriving, growing individual or business. And I think what we've done without this vocabulary is that we allow the shallow to take over more and more of the deep because it's easier to understand, it's easier to do. It it gives us a sense of busyness in the moment, but that's to our detriment.
0: Hey, I really hope you're getting great value from this show and we'll allow a brief pause to share our show sponsors and some resources we think may be of great benefit to you. Okay, I do want to mention the caveat that you put in there. I don't know if that's a, if that's a fair uh, definition to say a caveat, but for those who do get a lot of productivity done, being scattered in a sense like that. And you talk about uh, I think it was a CEO of of Twitter or something, and how he uh, and how he functions and gets obviously or no, it was uh, the, yeah the guy who did uh, Twitter and Foursquare. Uh, you mentioned him and used him as an example in the book. And that he does have a role where he is making a lot of decisions. He is pulling the trigger on a lot of things. He's a CEO or, or has a role in a couple of different companies. And that there is a, it's not that somebody can't get valuable done, uh, valuable work done in that modality, but you also say it's a very slim segment of roles. Just speak to that real quick for those who it may be gnawing on a little bit, just as, as you said in the book.
1: Yeah, there's definitely roles for which deep work is not that important. Uh, though I I tend to discover that there's many fewer of such roles than people think. So a lot of people who think they fall into that category don't. And so an interesting anecdote along those lines is in the book, as you mentioned, I use Jack Dorsey as an example. So he's the CEO of uh, Square and Twitter. And I used him as an example of someone where, Maybe deep work wasn't that important. He has a schedule where he's constantly jumping from one thing to another thing, you know, meeting here, look at this person, talk with this person. He has two companies to run. It's a very fragmented schedule. He, he, he doesn't have long periods where he just thinks. And I said in the book, that probably makes sense. For a CEO like that, you don't really want him to sit down and think hard for four hours. You probably want him to have hired someone to do that thinking for four hours on his behalf and then bring him the results for him to make a decision on. Interestingly, though, after the book came out, I got a note from one of Jack Dorsey's mentors and said, it's incorrect to say what Jack is doing is not deep work. Actually, he's incredibly locked in when he's going from these sort of meetings to meetings. He's uh, he's incredibly deeply concentrated to understand and pull out of each of these meetings the right value Hmm. to integrate it into his understanding. And the mentor was saying, Jack actually thinks deeper than uh, anyone I know. And so even then was an example of someone I thought was in the small sliver of people for whom deep work was not important. I'm now getting pushed back that actually, no, no, he also falls into the category where depth does matter. The, the main way to think about it is the market is competitive. So if you are not applying a hard won skill to produce something rare and valuable, um, it's not going to be valued that much by the market. And so if mainly what you're doing is just moving information around, yeah. posting quick things on social media and answering emails and, and, and having meetings and coffees, where is the actual production of something rare and valuable? In knowledge work, that almost always requires you to sit down and think hard. And so that's, that's the, one of the things I like to say about, let's say, social media is, hey, any 16-year-old with a smartphone can, can be on social media. So exactly how much value can that be producing versus – the hard work of I'm trained to do X and I think hard to produce this output that very few people could do. Goodness.
0: And and I look at this as an evergreen truth. How does it, or does it bump up against personality styles at all? Obviously some people are more prone to, it's easier for them to do that solitary work or, or stay focused. My wife is incredible. She can get on something and just focus. It blows me away. And, uh, and, and yeah, I admittedly, I struggle with it more. So uh, granted that there's some personality issues that come into play, regardless of the fact that it's a truth.
1: Well, there's two aspects there. One is we know that the ability to focus is very trainable and it's, it's probably more accurate to see it as a skill more than you would as either a personality trait or just a habit that everyone knows how to do and just needs to do more of. We know as you practice it, you get better at it. And if you're out of practice, you're worse at it. And so small arbitrary differences in, let's say, what type of career you're in or what, what, what you've been doing for the last few years can have a big impact on your comfort with focusing. That being said, there also is some evidence that some people are more naturally inclined yeah. to concentration than others. And we can certainly see this at the extremes. So if you look at an extreme case like professional chess playing, what's really being selected for in professional chess playing more than anything else is actually the ability to sustain intense focus. Because it's through that intense focus that they can actually do the learning of the chunks that is crucial for them actually playing the game uh, at a high level. And so if you go to the extremes, you're probably sorting for people that have a naturally high ability to focus. But when you leave these extremes, like professional chess players or, or professional mathematicians like I hang out with, and you get into the messy middle, what you see is that the impact of training is probably far swamping natural abilities. Because if you're in a world where almost no one is actually systematically developing their ability to focus, then if you're one of the few who are, you're probably going to be on the upper end of the spectrum, regardless of where your natural start point was.
0: And that, I love that message. Again, going back to my own kids about soft skills that I'm going to be talking to them about this book and about this message, because it's a place where they can stand out an asset. I, I So part of the book, actually, I think it was a chapter in, in the book you talked about, uh, yeah, it was embrace boredom and, that has been something I have been focused on with my kids again, for, first with them and then bringing it back to myself for a while of the value. And I bet I got it from you. It was probably from somebody who shared it. Maybe it was Michael Hyatt who introed us uh, that he talked about boredom. Somebody talked about boredom and the value of that, that we've gotten away from that. And it just it hit me. Absolutely. When we were kids, when I was a kid, there was a finite amount of things to do on a summer day. Uh, you didn't have the unlimited. Yeah, I mean, now it is, it is infinite uh, of the things that their attention can be given to. And I've now had to bring that to myself and realize, too, that I have such a difficult time letting myself just, well, you, you mentioned, you use the word leisure. Uh, being on the beach is my favorite because you're on the beach, you know, maybe you got a book and that's about it. Uh, don't bring anything, and it's forced. Leisure, But it, would you hit on that topic for all of us, for ourselves and for kids as well,
1: on the benefit? Boredom is interesting. I mean, not unlike hunger, there's not, there's not an intrinsic value in feeling bored. But boredom itself is pretty important. So there's two, there's two things I usually point out. One, if you're interested in increasing your ability to focus, mm-hmm. when the time comes to focus, you want to produce something important using your brain. If your mind has been trained previously that at the slightest hint of boredom, it gets a shiny treat from your phone or from your computer screen, it builds up a Pavlovian connection where boredom means distraction, boredom means distraction. And if your mind thinks that's always what happens, when it comes time to actually concentrate and think hard, it's not going to tolerate it. Because sustained concentration is boring in the technical sense that you don't have a lot of novel stimuli. You're doing one thing for a long period of time. And so if you have trained yourself, every time you're bored, you have this phone to look at and some algorithm is going to select for you something that's particularly interesting and and easy to digest. It becomes very hard when it comes time to actually focus on something professionally. And so in, in deep work, when I said you should embrace boredom, I was seeing that through the lens of training. I mean, it's the same thing like saying you should get sleep if you're a professional athlete or you should eat well. It's about training your brain that it can be okay without a bunch of novel stimuli. But there's also a a deeper thing going on here I get into in Digital Minimalism, the new book, which is that boredom is an important drive. I mean, it really is uncomfortable to be bored. Mm -hmm. We don't like being bored. Uh, We really want to get rid of that sensation. Well, we know whenever we have some sort of drive that's really strong, that means it probably has a pretty important use. We don't tend to have a lot of drives that aren't important to our our success as a species. So what's the goal of boredom? Well, typically boredom was meant to push us past our default mode of conserving energy to actually go and do something important. Hmm. Boredom is what says, you know, in general, I don't want to waste energy if I'm out there in the Paleolithic and I'm, I'm on the Savannah and, you know, what have you. Like, I want to preserve energy because it's hard to get food. Uh, but boredom will drive you to get up and say, I'm going to invent fire. I'm going to build a spear. I'm going to build whatever it is. I'm going to invent agriculture. Right? Boredom is actually a driver to get humans to actually uh, go out there, take intentions, make them manifest in the world, to do important, meaningful things. And so we have to be very wary when we introduce brand new technology that can disrupt this instinct for boredom. We can kind of get rid of it in the short term by looking at this, this phone all the time. But what happens when we do that? Well, it's just like when we satiate our, our drive for hunger with junk food. We're actually not allowing that drive to push us to where we're supposed to go. So now instead of actually going out there like we would do on those long summer days as kids and doing something meaningful, rounding up the group of friends, spending all day, you know, playing football in the field and building connections or whatever it is, or working on our hobbies, we can disrupt that instinct by just looking at a phone. But we're missing out on the benefits that historically boredom used to push us to because we're disrupting it with a technology that did not used to exist when this, this drive for boredom evolved. And so that's the two uses of boredom. One, you have to be comfortable with it if you're going to focus. And two, it's trying to tell us something. You know, boredom is trying to push us towards the type of things we need to do to thrive as humans. So we should be very wary of trying to disrupt this instinct with brand new technologies
0: yeah it reminds me of the terminology that we use in the health and wellness arena that people are overfed and malnourished um, that we 're doing that with our attention yeah the habit of distraction cal i mean i i have I, it, it exists, so this is a turning point for me with the deep work that I needed to do that to get off. I do, I usually have the screens open, my emails open, and I'm checking those because I'm looking for the next, you know, sale opportunity. Interesting thing. Uh, that's a, that has value in it, but it's taken me away from that deep work. What, you know, you talk about that deep work, you, in essence, the muse was the workplace. It was, uh, our work, but you kept hearing about people's struggles with technology in their personal lives that's what led you to digital minimalism and right off the top though i want you to i'm going to ask you to address because i mentioned it to a friend of mine the other day said hey i'm doing this interview this is the topic he said gosh man i get the idea of digital minimalism he said i admit i really like using my phone for gps uh for um uh you know i use it for for music. I think that's half the use or more of my phone is it's playing Spotify on my in my car or at home. But in essence, that's not what t- those are the things that the technology that as you say helps me interact with things that I value, different than the distraction, the addiction, if you will, to that constant, you know, dopamine hit of the next text. So it, it kind of segment those because you're not saying throw away your smartphone and don't use an app.
1: Yeah, well exactly. And and so this is minimalism is an old idea uh and and it it, it, we we can go back to marcus aurelius talks about it the gets into it more recently mary kondo talks about it i mean it shows up in a lot of different contexts throughout human history but the the basic idea is all things being equal you're better focusing your energy on the things you know for sure are really valuable as opposed to trying to take that same energy and spread it out over lots of other things to give you a little bit of value Mm. focus on the big wins don't worry about the small wins. And the basic mathematics behind it is because you have a finite amount of time and a finite amount of energy, and you're going to get the biggest returns in your life if you're really focused out on the things that give you a lot in return. If you take some of that energy and you spread it out over low, small value type things, you actually end up worse off. And so when you apply minimalism to your digital life, what it means is you should focus on the big win. So typically what a digital minimalist does is figure out, unrelated to technology, what do I care about? What do I value? What do I want to spend my time doing, especially outside of work? Then they work backwards and say, how can I carefully deploy technology to really boost these things I care about? And then they're happy ignoring everything else. Hmm. And so they just flip the script. Instead of having the technology being into itself, they see it very instrumentally. They're focused on what they care about. They're focused on what's really valuable to them. They'll bring in tech very carefully to get more out of those things and then are happy ignoring everything else what most of us have done instead of the last 10 years is adopted a philosophy of maximalism and maximalism says, if this thing over here could have brought you some value and you don't use it, it's like someone is taking that value from you. And so then you're like a hoarder, except for in terms of digital tools, you're out there trying to get every last scrap of value. Well, I don't want to miss out on that. And what if I could get some lead by using this new tool? And what if I met someone interesting here? So I should probably use that too, because the maximalist, really fears missing out on something of potential value. So the minimalist says, no, 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 focus on the things you know for sure are really valuable, ignore the rest. The maximalist says, don't miss any type of value. Minimalism historically has turned out to be a much better strategy for human flourishing. And so the digital minimalist does not have a universal list of good and bad technologies. That really differs depending on the person. What they share is a commitment to starting with what they care about first and then working backwards from that to figure out carefully what tech they should use.
0: Yes, I, you know it's interesting. I'm I'm a, a late adopter. I'm not a super techie guy, but I found myself feeling like, am I am I missing out? Am I the lone person who who doesn't? I'm not in the know.
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: so I I understand that. You know, right off when you have this topic, it feels like right away people are going to try to audit themselves. Am I a digital minimalist? And and I would guess that the first. Feeling is say no 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 I'm I'm good I'm, I'm I don't have a problem. Where are we as a culture on the awareness scale of our digital minimalism
1: or lack thereof? Well, this started shifting about two years ago. Okay. So right around two years ago is when I really began to notice people noticing themselves becoming uneasy. Okay. Because this is you know a topic I've been writing about for a while and and, oh. and for the most part. Typically, when I would talk about it, I would be cast as maybe a Luddite or an eccentric, maybe like a curiosity. About two years ago, this shifted and people began to get increasingly uneasy about the role that technology was playing in their personal life. So I think there's definitely a cultural shift going on. I think 2019, from a cultural perspective, looks very different than 2015 from a cultural perspective that in that small window shifts have occurred. And the main thing people are worried about and and to be clear about it is not utility. So if you talk to people, why are you uneasy about your technology? It's not because they think what they're doing specifically when they look at their phone is bad, right? Like, I don't, you know, look, I'm looking at Instagram It's a picture of my nephew. It's not bad. The thing that they're upset about is autonomy that they're thinking that they're looking at this way more than they need to. They're they're looking at the screen more than is useful. They're looking at the screen more than is healthy. They're looking at the screen to the exclusion of things that they know for sure are more important. There's a sense of, wait a second, I signed up for Service X for some innocent exploratory reason. Five years later, I get this screen time report from my iPhone This, says I'm using this five or six hours a week. Wait, what's going on here? So it's a sense of lack of autonomy. Not that this stuff is useless, but the fact that they're looking at it way more than they want to. That's the source of unease I'm picking up on, and that's relatively recent.
0: Well, on that, I've heard, you know, I almost call it the rumor mill. I have no idea where, if there's any substantiation to it or not, but that this social media, uh, this you know, the the dopamine hit at the next like, the next text or whatever, um, the next Facebook, whatever, is... Could it be a fad that will run its course? Is there going to be a, so much binging at a high point of binging and ODing on it, finding out that it's shallow, that it's hollow, hollow that it's, uh, hollow, that it's um, uh, you know, it's, it's producing bad food. it's causing anxiety. Are we going to see that it'll fade away? What are your thoughts on that? Any validity to it? Or do you just see it ramping up to oblivion?
1: No, see, I think it's hitting a a peak point. And that's a big source of why people in recent years have become uneasy. In some sense, they got too good at it. They've hijacked so much time that people can't ignore it anymore. And this story is actually really important. I mean, it's it's, it's one that surprised me, the magnitude of the story when I was researching this book, which was we think about this behavior where we look at our phone all the time as somehow being fundamental to the technology. Like, this is what you do with a phone. You look at it all the time. It has interesting things. But if you really look into it, you find out this behavior was actually much more engineered than we we remember. And it was actually led, I mean, the storyline I uncovered was essentially we have Facebook took the lead here. Rewind, whatever, five or six years. Their IPO is coming up. Okay, that means they have to switch from user acquisition mode into revenue generation mode is the revenue numbers are key for hitting the price that Wall Street wanted for their stock sure. issue. So how do they get their revenue numbers up? Well, they had to get their average user to look at Facebook way more than they were on the average day. So they, they overwent this huge reinvention of what the social media experience was. It used to be this web 2.0 vision where I post things, you post things, I occasionally check what you posted because you're a friend of mine and I'm curious that didn't get people looking at their screens enough. So they re-engineered the experience. So it was instead about a stream of social approval indicators coming towards you as the user in the form of things like likes and tags and photos and comments and favorites and retweets features, which were not in the original versions of any of these platforms. These took off because now every time you hit the app, you can see some evidence, oh, a lot of people were thinking about me right now. And then you tap it the next time and oh, no one's thinking about me right now. And then you tap it again and you find out, wait, someone's upset at me. Well, that is nearly irresistible. When that's the experience, it becomes almost impossible not to keep tapping that icon and checking, and then to make matters worse, as whistleblowers have now revealed in the last few years, they completely worked on the interfaces to make the experience more addictive. They tuned the algorithms to make what you see more addictive. I and mean, they put a lot of actual effort into not just reengineering the experience, but making it very hard to put it down. But that essentially trained us to think about the phone as a constant companion. We didn't used to use our smartphones that way. There's no reason why we have to use them that way today. It was pretty much uh, a business model yeah well executed, and we're just a line item in that sort of data table, right? We are the pawns in this business plan that was being executed. So to me, it's a really significant storyline that the reason why we look at these things all the time to the point where we're really unhappy, to the point where it's impoverishing our life, is not just because we chose to, not just because it's interesting, but because a small number of companies figured out if they could retrain us to do that, it would be highly profitable.
0: So I want you to go down that path now of the, as you talk about the awareness that you've seen in the past couple of years, I know for myself, uh, it's been in my own exposure to the topic of this and how addiction is really a word. I mean, how, how, do, how, how far down and, and aside from those businesses engineering us towards that addiction, how is that? How addicted are we in essence? Well, you know, to, Give some light on how that's actually working in our psyche and why we are habitually coming back to that Instagram. Why can't we put the dumb thing down?
1: So the psychologist I talked to said probably the best way to describe our relationship with these tools is as a moderate behavioral addiction. Okay. And so this is different than, let's say, a substance addiction which has different mechanisms and different impacts. So if you're addicted to a drug, for example, uh, some sort of substance that can cross the blood brain barrier, completely different beast. You're going to have very strong withdrawal symptoms. Uh, It's going to cause, you will probably uh, go through great efforts. If you don't have access to the stimulant to actually go and get access to it, you'll steal proverbial steal your mother's jewelry, right? So substance addiction can be a very powerful thing. Moderate behavioral addiction is different. And so with a moderate behavioral addiction, if you have access to the thing, you will probably use it more than you, you think you should or more than you think is healthy. On the other hand, if I take it away from you or you go off on a camping trip or something like this, you're not going to be sneaking off in the middle of the night to find an internet cafe. You know, you're, <laughs> not gonna be, you're not going to be breaking into the Apple store because you have to get your fix, right? So it, yeah. it falls somewhere on the spectrum. Uh, a, a good analogy is like if someone always puts donuts out at your office every morning you know, you probably shouldn't eat donuts, but if they're there every time you could develop this habit where you're like, I, I just, I have to have a couple of those donuts. When I go to get my coffee every morning, Absolutely. That, that could be a behavioral addiction. Yeah. You get rid of the donuts. though, so you're not going to bother walking 20 minutes down the street to a bakery. That's where a lot of us are with these, uh, engineeredly addictive social media services is if we have access to it, we're going to use it more than we should. The problem is We always have access to it because it's on this little device that we carry with us in our pocket everywhere. So that's the bad news. We're going to use it more than we should. Even though in the moment we know I'm with my kids and I need to be paying attention with them, you're still going to use it when it's there. But on the other hand, if you take it away or you you take some of these services off your phone or you you, you cancel some of these services, you find out, oh, that's not so bad. You don't miss it.
0: Well, and I think that came from, again, back to Michael Hyatt. He talked about that for himself of just realizing his propensity to use it more than he should. So he just took off all the apps Uh, other than the necessity. He has his text on there and his, you know, for me, it'd be Spotify, have my music and and whatnot, but took the rest off there. I followed suit. So I got rid of Instagram. I got rid of Facebook. I got rid of those things. So now I can't. So now I'm like the uh, gosh, what was the, the funny meme? about, uh, you know, there's a guy in his, in the coffee shop, sitting at a table, not on his phone, not on a laptop, just drinking coffee, like a psychopath. Uh, (laughs) I I, I get that. I feel that sometimes when I try to put it away and just stand in line and look around and then I feel self-conscious, like I'm going to make eye contact, which we don't do anymore. And I mean, there are those even that from a real social pressure, you feel goofy. Being, well, going back now, but you said, you said a line in there. I really appreciate it. It actually reminded me uh, in the book, Undoctored by Dr. William Davis. He talks about, and when he's talking about diet and nutrition, that people respond and go, Oh, you want me to eat in some extreme way. And he said, no, I want you to realize that the way that our culture eats now is extreme. I saw you make a very similar statement now that we're saying, Oh, so you want me to be extreme and like not use my phone and not, and you're saying no. And getting us to understand that the, what we're doing now is extreme, Which we've got to, I, I hope that we are more aware that we go into the grocery or the, uh, uh, the restaurant and see the family all sitting around with their smartphones
1: looking at a screen. It's, it's mind boggling. And it's, and it's very new and it's very novel. And we've become oh. used to it very quickly. You just have to go back less than 10 years. This re-engineering of the phone to be something we look at all the time is less than 10 years old. So if you go back to 2010 or 2009 or let's say you brought someone from 2009 forward into the future, they would see you standing in line at the coffee shop not looking at your phone as the only normal person in that store. The- first thing that would catch their eye is oh my god why is everyone looking at their phone is everyone getting calls (laughs) what that's crazy they're all getting calls at the same time like what's going on here i mean it would immediately catch your attention if you were just from eight or nine years ago why is everyone looking at their phone are they all switching their song at the same time like did everyone's song end at the same time is everyone getting a call at the same time i mean it it would be completely noticeable how unusual that was and that's just someone coming from eight or nine years ago And so this change we have is incredibly quick. It was pushed by some business models. I mean, we have no reason to suspect that this was probably a good thing. And so uh, I think it's worth noting, and I always emphasize this point, that the always looking at your screen is an incredibly unnatural, unusual, very recent behavior. And when you see it through that lens, it's much easier to say, just like you're talking about it undoctoring maybe... I'm not looking for an extreme solution. Maybe I'm just recognizing that I've accidentally fall, fallen into extreme behavior already. It is weird. I
0: mean, if we came to a Starbucks line and you had 20 people lined up there and every single one of them was reading a book, I think we'd all yeah. look at that. That's weird. What, what? Is there something in the news that I missed? Yeah. Uh, and yet that's yeah. what we do. Uh, you talked then about A philosophy of technology. I love that perspective and it's rooted in your deep values. I mean, here in the show, well, you know, coming up next, we're going to do the habits interview and we're going to go through with you. What are your intentional habits in those areas? Physical and nutrition, you know, relationships, mental, financial, spiritual career, you know, personal and you know, what is, especially on diet. When I look at that, most people have, I think most people listening to this show have enough understanding and knowledge to know that they need to have a certain nutritional diet to get them the results that they want to. And here you're saying, we need to have a digital diet, a philosophy of technology. Explain that a little bit, how you structure that.
1: Well, I think diet is a good analogy, right? Because if if we think about people's health and fitness, like what do we see? We saw in the, the second half of the 20th century, we had the rise of highly palatable, highly unhealthy processed foods. Yeah. And this led in the West to an obesity epidemic and lots of associated health issues, right? And so how do we make progress on that? Well, we tried tips, you know? We tried, hey, you should eat less and move more. We put up the food pyramid in the, the nurse's office at school. We said vegetables are good. I mean, we tried giving people tips, like here's how you should eat healthy. Doesn't make a difference. So if you think who are the people you know who are the healthiest, the sort of almost annoyingly good shape almost always they don't have tips. They have a philosophy of health and fitness, right? right? right. They're, they're paleo or vegan and, and the physical aspect are really in the or whatever it is, but they have a philosophy that's based on ideas that they believe in. They don't just have tips and tricks. I think the same thing is happening or should happen with technology, right? That The forces pushing us back to these screens are so powerful. They're so palatable that just trying to throw good intentions and tips and tricks at it isn't going to work. They just say like, hey, guess what? You should turn off your notifications or put your screen to grayscale. That's very popular right now, especially among tech types, is that they make their smartphone screen black and white so that it cuts off some of the color cues that, hmm. that draw our attention. Hmm. Or let's do a digital Shabbat is a big one. You know, one day a week, I'm not going to use the phone or I'm not going to have my bedroom. Like, oh, th- these tips are fine. let not fixing the problem just like the food pyramid didn't stop people from being obese. So what we need is what's the, what's the digital equivalent of veganism or paleo or whatever. What's the philosophy that people can believe in that makes sense to them, that is based on principle that connects to their values that can help them really reform their relationship with tech. I think that's what we need. So digital minimalism is one such philosophy. I don't know if it's the right one, but I'm pretty convinced that we need philosophies like it. If we're going to, Fix this broken relationship we have with these tools. Tips aren't going to get there. We have to have a much more coherent and cohesive approach to figuring out what role do I want these tools to play in my life? Because if we don't have that thinking done, we don't ground it in values, the tools are going to grind us down. It's going to make us into essentially serfs in these data factories where we're just unwittingly spending all day giving data into these algorithms so that you can generate ad revenue. We need something stronger than just good intentions, we need something stronger than tips.
0: Yeah. You know, when the Apple, when I got, I got a new phone, I had got an, at some point through business, we got iPhone 10, uh, 10s. And I didn't even know that the little timer thing was on there. And then it came and showed me how much time I was spending. I was ashamed. I mean, bottom line, I, I was literally ashamed. And Thought I didn't have a, an issue with that, but just realizing how much time I'm wasting. I felt bad that I felt bad in an accountability to my family. I've really, I'm spending this much time during my workday away from my family, not generating revenue, wasting time. And it took me to taking the apps off to where now I just don't have anything on there. I can only check the weather so many, so many times.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, and, and there's a bigger difference that makes as well, which has been one of the interesting discoveries I've had talking to readers after the book came out. So It's not just a time that's taken up looking at the phone. It's a mindset. And this is especially true among young people, right? So the people I know who who have the best relationship with their technology know what they're all about, and they put tech to use for these things they care about. The people who have the worst relationship with technology, it's not just that they don't put the tech to use, but they allow the tech to basically become an escape. Yeah. And, and it allows them to, to essentially just avoid having to confront things such as, what am I really want to wow. do? Where am I falling short? What do I care about? What's hard? What are the thoughts I don't want to confront? And when it becomes this escape, I, I, I quoted this novelist, Mark Haddon, on my blog recently where he, he said he quit Twitter in part because it was bleeding off the steam uh, of his life wow. so that he could no longer get the head of steam required to actually do something meaningful like produce a novel. Wow. And so – I heard from a, a someone I know, actually. I knew him before the book came out. He's a, a young man in his 20s. But he, he talked to me after the book came out and said, hey, this changed my life. And I said, well, well what do you mean? He's like, let me tell you all the things I've done since I've read this book. And he he rattled off this list. He he lost a lot of weight, got in good shape. He's got to some high level in jujitsu. He became really good at a certain type of dancing. Um, his relationships really strengthened. His business grew by 20 or 40%. This whole long list of all these things. I said, well, what is that? What does that have to do with technology? And, and what he said was, once he's, he stepped away from, I just blindly use these tools, it's not just that it freed up more time for him, but it changed his mindset. He said, okay, when I take away the idea that this phone is just an escape, yeah. something I do that just fill my time so I don't have to confront the world, I don't have to confront my values, I don't have to confront my life. When he took away that option, he had no other uh, course but to take seriously what I really want to do. And it introduced a sort of intention and discipline in his life that's completely transformed completely mm-hmm. transformed him. And that's, that's the, the bigger danger of this tech and the bigger value of becoming intentional about it. It's not just that it, it eats up a lot of time. It's not just that it distracts us in the moment from things that are more valuable. But it puts us into this headspace where we don't have to confront our life. Mm-hmm. Because I can just do this. I can just look at this screen. When I feel a little uncomfortable, when I feel a little bit sad, when I feel a little bit like I'm not living up to my potential, when when the world just seems too hard, when I have thoughts I don't want to confront, if you can constantly escape that, no progress is made. And so leaving that world of this screen is an escape from me. When you leave that world, life gets a little bit harder in the short term, but then it becomes much more fantastic in the long term because you actually embrace where you are and what you want to do. It just makes me
0: think back again to the boredom issue when we're at home and it's the weekend and we tell the kids no screens. They're bored for a minute, uh, uncomfortable for a minute, and then they go build a treehouse or they create a fantasy game in their heads and they're running around the yard. And it's the same way with me. I love the way that you put that. So, Hey, I'm uh, my action next Cal, just so you know, the rest of the day, uh, no for date. I mean, I, I have to have a new philosophy and it is when I am doing those deep work. Cause there is the time when I'm making decisions, pulling triggers and I'm doing that and there's great value in that. But I also, I'm, I'm a maker in what I do. I, I create things. And when I do that, I have got to shut down my email. I have four different email accounts, four different business endeavors. They're always up and it's always a draw. And I am letting it get into my deep work and that attention residue. uh, It's just so convicting, man. I'm so grateful for the message that you put out here. And is this, I mean, as you're on these lines, is this the vein you see yourself continuing down as technology evolves and you're part of it, the good side of it, but that you are going to be a, uh, you know, Pied Piper in essence of bringing us back to health within
1: it. Yes, I think I think the the impact of tech and culture, the unintended consequences, and how we get past them is something I'm really interested in. So I, I can tell you now, I'm working on a new book, and the working title is "A World Without Email." Wow! And I am I am tackling head on all of the unintentional consequences that happened when we introduced low friction digital communication to the workplace, and then just said, "Have at it." Have at it, yeah. And I'm going to say what what happened. My theory is, uh, it it spun our work cultures and knowledge work in the places that are sort of uh, spectacularly unproductive and that the future is going to be a future where this idea that we just have email addresses and Slack channels, we just rock and roll. We're going to move past it and work is going to get more structured. And five years from now, you know, Kevin's not going to have just four email addresses that he monitors all the time. There's going to be more structure there. And there's going to be actual, well, this is happens with this process. And I don't do this anymore. And then I have this person who handles this and that we're going to, as we, Open the black box and start actually thinking about how the human brain works. I think we're going to see these really exciting and interesting evolutions in how we work as knowledge workers. We are just really very early. I mean, knowledge work in the age of digital networks is 30 years old, which is nothing, historically speaking. That is very little time. If you go back and look at how long it figured out for us to understand steam power in the industrial age, it took a couple hundred years. And so We are in the very early simplistic stages of trying to understand how do we make things with our brain in a world where we're connected with computers. And I think there's lots of exciting evolution and innovation going to happen. That's going to make us not only more productive, but much happier. And so that's what I'm looking at now. And I'm trying to document that in my new book. And so I'm pretty optimistic that the world of work for people like you or people like me who make things with our brain is going to get more exciting, more impactful Uh, more sustainable in the years ahead. I
0: mean, I'm eager to make mine more so in the next days and and weeks ahead because I'm letting it infringe upon the deep work that I want to do, that I long to do, that I feel called to do, that uh, is a complete joy. And yet I've let this seep in and uh, it's not hard to cut it off. Nobody will die. And I hear it, but I just didn't have it put in front of my face. So thanks for the call to action. I hope this inspires everyone to have a philosophy for this digital world. And honestly, I keep thinking about it as a budget. I I can only allot so much time to it. So um, thank you uh, for giving us your time here on the show. Thank you for giving me this message. I need it as much as anyone, Cal. Thank you.
1: No, it's my pleasure.
0: Well, friends, immense insight from Cal Newport. So grateful for his time with us. You can find all of his books, such as Deep Work and Digital Minimalism, which I just had, again, my two teenage boys read, wherever you buy books. And connect with all he has to offer you at calnewport.com. Well, coming up in show 704, our topic is dissecting what strengthens and weakens our decision-making. I mean, do you ever get decision fatigue or just have fear in making important decisions? Well, you're not alone as you're going to hear in show 699 titled how to make decisions with confidence. We talked with decision making expert, David Meltzer, incredible information from this former consultant for the movie, Jerry Maguire, which I love. Uh, So I went to you, the Ziegler audience and asked this question on a scale from one to 10, 10 being the best, how would you rate your confidence in making important decisions and why? It was incredibly revealing. Here's some highlights. No surprise, people tend to feel far less confident when in crisis. Uh, many shared they are more confident in helping guide others in decision-making when, than when it's about them. Uh, People-pleasers, which, goodness, I admittedly struggle with, have a hard time when their decisions include other people. Uh, Many found it harder when there are a lot of choices in their decision-making. Some felt they were generally competent overall, but it often just took them a really long time to make decisions. Seeking counsel from others was a really common thread. Uh, The term analysis paralysis came up multiple times. And the aspect of having to remove emotion when making decisions was brought up. And then, of course, much discussion came around the roles of uh, in decision-making of experience, maturity, and a big one, faith. So till then, folks, thanks as always for letting me walk with you as we inspire our true performance together.